Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. A girl comes face to face with a long tormented spirit that has been seeking her return in Jezebel, premiering on demand the same day it hits theaters. In the French film Mood Indigo, newlyweds Chloe and Colin find their whirlwind courtship tested when an unusual illness plagues Chloe. Watch it on demand starting November 11th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And coming up on the show, Matt offers some Mohawk hair care tips as we review the Swedish punk rock coming-of-age movie, We Are the Best. Now remember, Allison, you have to make sure it's firm but can still move because that indicates healthiness. <laughs> okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can move on. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And inspired by We Are the Best and my vast knowledge of Mohawk hair care tips, we were going to do a podcast about Mohawks in the movies. We were even going to give out the Bickles, our awards for the best and pointiest cinematic Mohawks. And then, Allison, you reminded me that this actually was all a bit, that I've never had a Mohawk and don't know anything about them. This was an excellent point. You see, I'm actually a method podcaster, and sometimes I get so deep into my jokes, my podcasting jokes, that I forget my real personality. I live inside them for a while. You insist your wife also address you by this joke? Yes. It's uh, it's terrible. It can take weeks, really, to bring you out of it. it, it it's very intense, my preparations and then my follow-through. It gets very intense. But uh, thankfully, you brought me back to reality, and instead, we're going to recommend some other movies about rock bands. But first up is Opening Break, which is a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. Allison, what are our picks this week? I've got two films that I've been looking forward to catching up with uh, that are relatively new to theaters that are now on demand, and one that I'll, I'll point out more for, for news purposes, let's say. Uh, <laughs> okay. So first up is 20,000 Days on Earth, which is available on demand on November 18th. This is a doc of sorts. It's kind of a, one of those ones that blurs the line. It's co-written and directed by Ian Forsyth and Jane Pollard and is a fictional recreation of the, of the 20,000th day in the life of Australian musician, writer, composer, and actor Nick Cave, which is also when he started recording his 2013 album Push the Sky Away. 
Cave also co-wrote the scripts with Forsyth and Pollard, and it becomes this kind of slightly fantastical experience that brings in a lot of Cave's collaborators like Kylie Minogue and Ray Winstone and also looks into his creative process and into his family life, which is not always not always in the most flattering way. Uh, and it's supposed to also be beautiful, and from the footage I've seen, it, it looks very visually interesting. At the end of the 20th century, I ceased to be a human being. Do you ever have that sense of being an outsider? Do you love performing still? I live for it. There's something that happens on stage where you are transported. I wake, I write, I eat. Mm. I probably had more meals with you than my wife. I watch TV. This is my 20,000th day on Earth. So, and I, I like Nick Cave, and he's an interesting person, and I think that this is a, an unusual enough approach to the kind of portrait of a musician, which is a always reliable uh, source of documentaries, but not always an interesting one. Uh, this seems like an interesting approach. So that's 20,000 Days on Earth. It is available on demand on November 18th. Available on demand a few days before that, on November 14th, is Bad Turn Worse, the feature directorial debut by brothers Simon and Zeke Hawkins, uh, another brother directorial team a neo-noir that played at Toronto last year and then Fantastic Fest and has gotten some good notices. I know it definitely has some fans. It's about three Texas teens who uh, are kind of trying to get out of their dead-end town, uh, two of them at least, to college. But when their friend, who's kind of the loose cannon, steals money from the wrong man, they end up all pulled into paying back the local crime boss. Um, and the actors in that include Jeremy Allen White, who is Lip Gallagher in Shameless, and uh, who I like a lot, Logan Huffman, and Mackenzie Davis, who is very much on the verge of stardom, um, both from Halt and Catch Fire and from her movie appearances. So uh, that's another one that you know I've heard very good things about, and it is available on November 14th, which I think is around the time it hits theaters as well. And finally, A Merry Friggin' Christmas, which is now available on demand. It's a dark comedy about a man, played by Joel McHale, who realizes he forgot all of his son's presents at home when they travel to his parents' house for the holiday, and who attempts to make the eight-hour drive to retrieve them before the kid wakes up, and coming with him is the father he doesn't really get along with. It's actually got a great comedic cast, including Lauren Graham, Clark Duke, Oliver Platt, Wendy McClendon-Covey, Tim Heidecker, and Candace Bergen. And has overall gotten pretty indifferent reviews. And I mention it because it is one of the last films that Robin Williams made. He plays Mikhail's dad and is by most accounts a pleasure, you know, even when he was in movies that weren't the, the greatest, he was never one to phone it in. So if you're interested in seeing, seeing a little more, a few more new films from uh, Robin Williams, that is one of them and it is currently available on demand. <laughs> Our topic for cue shots on this episode of SVU rock bands, not not just punk rock. That would be too limiting, I think, especially 
if we had to find recommendations. I don't know that there's enough of those. There's a couple. There are but some, but I mean, not all on streaming. I think right. there there's an interest. Uh, punk is interesting to me. Punk on film because you really epitomize punk I, in so I many do. ways. I know, but uh, it also, I feel like the intersections between punk and studio, you know, like uh, studio films are very interesting uh, because yes. punk is so doesn't work in that direction very much at all. Right. And so uh, I, I do find it very interesting when there are attempts on even kind of indie studios part to make punk fit into the realm of like a narrative. Yeah. It is weird sometimes when there's a right. It, it doesn't come up too much in, in Hollywood movies, but there are those kind of bigger indie movies that are even like punk rock biopics. And it's always a little off putting when they look so polished and good you know, it seems yeah. to, it seems to even if it's an indie movie, it just seems to go against the idea of punk when they're, you know, like a s- glossy Sundancey biopic about the Runaways or whatever right. it is. They just it just doesn't, you know, there aren't too many that I can think of that really match that punk ethos in 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 visual style the way they do sonically. Yeah, and I always think about you know, there's the documentary The Filth and the Fury about yeah. the Sex Pistols. And there's one scene in that in which Sid Vis- Vicious is like, he's sitting next to Nancy Spungen and he's like nodding out and he keeps like kind of poking her with a cigarette and she's like, Sid, you know, stop. And that scene, I feel like no movie could ever capture, like no fiction movie could ever quite capture that scene in all that it, it you know, involves. Mm. And it's such a, like, a great, terrible, sad funny scene you know the ultimate or at least the film that i always think about when we talk about bands in beyond spinal tap obviously yeah that's the obvious one almost famous i I mean it's the idea or some kind of monster the metallica documentary Mm -hmm. but i it's the idea of having this great glamorous image on stage and then just bickering so much because you have to spend so much time together in like you know and tour buses and, you know, traveling and that you're this dysfunctional family, really. Yeah. And I, f- I, I feel like there's something to that dynamic that, you know, so cool, so like untouchable. And also you fight over who gets the last sandwich or right. something. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are, I mean, the Spinal Tap for sure is one that we obviously had to mention at least. It'd be a little too obvious to make it one of our picks, I think. But certainly can't uh, can't go undiscussed at least i think you bring up a good point i know that both of my picks that i've chosen are about this the idea of the on on stage and the off stage and the way that they're sometimes the the friction off stage it almost seems to at least in the mythology of these movies it almost seems to create the brilliance on stage right that the the bickering and the the tortured lives and the and the, the struggle is what makes makes them great um, I think what's interesting about one of my picks is I, I, I feel like it kind of deconstructs that myth in some interesting ways. But we'll get to that when we get to that movie. Do you want to go first with your first pick? Sure, I'll go first. Uh, my first pick is a movie that does not let you inside the band uh, in any way, but that's actually part of its charm. It is Rock and Roll High School, which is currently streaming on Netflix. This is the 1979 movie directed by Alan Arkush and direct- produced, of course, by Roger Corman a musical comedy about the misbehaving rock and roll loving students of Vince Lombardi high school led by Riff Randall played by PJ souls, who is a huge Ramones fan. And I think what the best way to explain this film, if you haven't seen it, other than the fact that it is like a kind of energetic and joyful and a lot of fun 
is that it's not a project that began trying to make a movie about the punk rock band, the Ramones. You know, Corman was like, I want to make a teen movie like the ones I remember in the 50s and 60s. It's going to have a musical element. So first they conceived of it as disco high. And then they're like heavy metal. It's going to be heavy metal. And then they're like, we're going to make this about Cheap Trick, the band. That's going to be the central band. But Cheap Trick was too busy. And so instead (laughs) someone suggested the Ramones, you know, the hugely influential but extremely New York punk rock band who in this movie get given this like ragged Corman-esque version of like the Beatles treatment you know like people standing in line for days and days and days for tickets screaming fans uh you know uh, Riff Randall swoons over six and a half foot tall gangly Joey Ramone with his hair all in his face like he's you know the world's most obvious heartthrob And uh, there's something that's very likable about that, uh, especially given that in reality, you know, the band suffered from like uh, band members fought about they are like suffered from bipolar disorder, alcoholism, drug addiction, you know, Dee Dee Ramone overdosed. uh, They all of the original members have died. Um, some, Some from cancer. So the Ramones, not as cheery a story as they necessarily get presented as here, but they are adorable in this. And the movie barely has a plot to speak of. It's about a controlling principle played by Mary Warrenov and is otherwise just kind of packed with a lot of charming, silly visual jokes. There's a freshman who's always being tortured in the background, shoved it like someone opens a locker and he's there and no one even looks. They put something in there. Played by me. Played by you. Uh, There's a school fixer who takes meetings in an office in the boys' bathroom like the Fonz. And then uh, there are music scenes. When the Ramones arrive... They arrive and then they have a concert and the concert's just so energetic and fun. You know, they play many of their greatest hits. When they play Teenage Lobotomy, uh, the movie splashes the word lobotomy on the screen like bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, And it's just generally pretty joyous. And I really like the idea of attaching this kind of more innocent and in some ways very inappropriate seeming teen movie to the Ramones and the disconnect between, I don't know, at least how I've always thought about the Ramones uh, and then this like giddy teen movie it works really well. It's, it's, you know, a cult favorite for a reason, uh, including the fact that Corman then of course made a lousy sequel. I won't be But it's, uh, it's one that you should check out. It is Rock and Roll High School, and it is on Netflix. All right. That's a great pick. My first pick uh, also kind of views a rock band or a bunch of rock stars through the prism of, a, of an outsider, uh, in this case, a journalist. Uh, and it's Velvet Goldmine from 1998, directed by Todd Haynes. And that is also streaming now on Netflix. And uh, I'd actually never seen this movie before. Somehow I had really? missed it. Yeah, this was, this was my excuse to uh, watch it as I often do on this podcast, is, is use it as an excuse to see things that I've never had a chance to. And it doesn't fit perfectly. The band, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. It, the band is not the key element as much as the, the, the rock star or a couple of rock stars are. But if you haven't seen the film like I hadn't until recently, it's basically Citizen Kane if Orson Welles had been a glam rock fan and possibly a heroin user. That's, that's the premise. It totally steals the Citizen Kane structure. It's about a reporter investigating a famous person's death, or in this case, a famous person's faked death, uh, a David Bowie-esque rock star named Brian Slade. 
Uh, in the film, it's 1984, 10 years after Slade faked his death, and a newspaper reporter played by Christian Bale, a young Christian Bale, uh, who was actually at the concert where Slade faked his death, is assigned to write a story about it. It's just, you know, journalism hasn't changed that much, Allison. It's all <laughs> about anniversaries. Someone, his editor is like, you know, hey, it's the 10-year anniversary of uh, this. You should write a, find him. Where is he now? And write a piece about him. So that's sort of the, the overarching structure is Christian Bale going around to different people who knew Brian Slade, trying to find out what happened to him, how he came to be, and maybe where he is now. Tonight, we toast! in Velvet Goldmine, as I mentioned already, about Brian Slade's band, Venus and Fur, but there's a lot about his relationship creatively and even sexually with this other rock star, this drug-addled guy named Kurt Wilde, who's played in the film by Ewan McGregor. If I didn't mention earlier, Brian Slade is played by Jonathan Reese myers and Kurt Wilde and Brian Slade are collaborators, they're, they're lovers at points, and they're really great together in the film, and the way that their creative lives and their private lives intertwine, I think, is really the thing that's interesting. It is kind of the almost famous thing, except there's like kind of an added sexual element to it as well. And it, it, watching the movie, I was like, this is what we could hope for and we'll probably never get. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But it's like it's the Fleetwood Mac movie we've never gotten because Fleetwood Mac, you know, put out all this great music together. They were an amazing creative band, but they also they were all like screwing each other and they were constantly fighting and taking lots of drugs and it's just like i love i i love watching that aspect of of their dynamics i feel like we've we we haven't gotten enough movies about that specifically uh in we are the best which we'll talk about later there is an element of sexual tension and how that can potentially affect a band but in that case it's it's uh members of the band all kind of both chasing after the same other person outside the band in this case it's I mean, Brian and, and Kurt aren't in the same band, but they're collaborators. They work together, and there's uh, it's sort of a, interesting to watch their relationship play out, also as it's interpreted by people who are out, you know, outside of those two people describing it. It's always that element. Like one of their wives. That's right, like yes. one of their wives, yes. Yeah. I don't want to spoil too much, but yeah, that's absolutely just <laughs> well, one. Well, she's a character. She's, she's a main a character. character, yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of David Bowie, Iggy Pop fan fiction. Yeah, like or yeah, like uh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's sort of yeah, it's a yeah, slash it's a slash <laughs> interpretation of David Bowie and Iggy Pop. Absolutely, uh, but it's you know it's Todd Haynes and it's very well shot, edited, um, and the music itself is fantastic. If you're a fan of, of of glam rock and that era of of rock music, it's really great. There are you know classic songs. There are covers of classics. There are new songs done in the style of the classics. And one of the important things about any movie about a rock band is the the actors have to really convincingly be charismatic. And I think uh, McGregor and Reese Myers make two of the most convincing rock stars in movie history. To a certain extent, the characters remain a little distant uh, because of that structure, because of the fact that we're seeing their lives interpreted by other people as they're telling 
Christian Bale about them. But I think that works to a degree because, you know, the film is as, you know, you called it fan fiction. And I think it is as much about rock and roll as it is about, you know, fans' ideas of rock and roll and about the mystique of rock and roll and the, you know, the distant, aloof, brilliant genius that we're, we as the ordinary humans are trying to interpret. We, we see them standing on the stage and we impart them with all this, we build them up in our minds. And I think the movie is, is, is trying to kind of piece together that with trying to find the, the, the real person behind it when, when you're not that person. I, I think that's a really interesting way of exploring these characters. So I think it's a, it's a little bit of a cheat because it's not necessarily about the band so much as it is about these two guys who work together, uh, collaborators, you know, but I'm going to allow it because I really wanted to watch it and I really liked it. And I hope other people who haven't seen it, check it out. That's Velvet Goldmine streaming now on Netflix. All right. My next pick is a film that I had not seen until this point. Matt, have you seen this film? Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. I haven't. I haven't. Uh, I've heard of it for sure. And I'm glad you're seeing it because I know it is a really, especially given our listener's choice review, I think it's a... And it's good that we're someone here has seen it and can talk <laughs> it about fits. it. Yeah, it's available for rent on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube. And actually, I just saw it's also streaming on Amazon Prime. So there you go. Oh. Freebie. Uh, and I love it. It's I really it really just like blew me away. It's 1982 film, um, the year in which, incidentally, we are the best is set. Directed by Lou Adler, the record producer, producer of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, director of Up in Smoke. And it was written by Nancy Dowd, who was coming off an Academy Award win for Coming Home and who ended up taking her name off of the film following a troubled production. Um, like, by all accounts, the production was a mess of sexual harassment and chaos. Uh, and the film was assembled in editing. And you can see some of the roughness on screen. There's one part where Diane Lane, who is the star, like has a line ADR'd in where her lips are clearly not moving. She's like facing forward. Um, but it's so ahead of its time in terms of how it deals with authentic artistic auth authenticity and the co-opting of rebellion and feminism and marketing lane who i think was 15 or 16 at the time this is only i think her second role plays corin burns who is a teenager in a crumbling small town in pennsylvania who gets fired on air after blowing up at her manager at this restaurant she works at during a TV interview, like a TV news interview about the local economy, where she says this town is dead anyway, uh, is already dead. This town is already dead. She makes enough of an impression that when the film begins, they're doing a follow-up interview in which she uh, she reveals that her mom recently died. So it's just she and her. It's just her and her, her younger sister. Uh, and then in this largely indifferent interview, manages to plug the band that she's just started with her sister and her cousin, played by an even younger Laura Dern. Uh, the band is The Stains. And uh, this appearance catches the attention of a small-time promoter named Lawn Boy, who's passing through on a tour with a rising punk band called The Looters, headed up by a handsome 20-something Ray Winstone doing his best Johnny Rotten impersonation. And Lawn Boy signs Corinne's band, The Stains, without ever hearing them. And he wouldn't have if he'd heard them because they can barely play instruments. They have like one, one or two songs. They have no particular talent. Uh, and their first gig uh, in which the audience is about ready to boo them off the screen, Corinne 
turns to the audience and just like yells at them about how they're all like how terrible they are and then reveals this new punk look she's made for herself which becomes this very iconic one in which she's dyed white stripes in her hair and has like red makeup and she shows off this like sheer outfit she's wearing and no pants and she tells them I'm perfect, but nobody in this blank hole gets me because I don't put out and walks away and becomes pretty instantly a local star. You don't fool me for a minute. I know all about you. You came here tonight thinking you'd see some cute and wonderful rock star. And you hope maybe he'd take one look at you from up on that stage and he'd fall in love with you just like that. Then your savior could take you out of this dump of a town you live in. You could be different from all the other girls. Suckers! 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 Be yourselves. These guys laugh at you. They've got such big plans for the world, but they don't include us. So what does that make you? Just another girl lining up to die. You know, and what's so great about this film is that uh, you know, Corinne is not a punk when the film begins. She, uh, she's just desperate. They have no money. She's just filled with all of this genuine anger that she's in this place with no great, no opportunities to get out. And as far you know, like no real way to even support herself and her sister. And she grabs this opportunity with both hands and like yanks. And uh, she has, she kind of clashes and then has, you know, a connection with Winston's character but, you know, he looks at her as this inauthentic thing because she really can't play. She has, they don't have any particular musical talent. But her rage, like, manages to come across as just as punk, if not more punk than he is. She kind of, she kind of bowls him over. And uh, their dynamic is, is very interesting. Uh, you know, and the story is just, is one of basically the meteoric rise and fall of the stains. And I, I think uh, it, it, in in that like relatively short time it manages so many great things about about like using your sexuality about the idea of what authenticity means in music uh and lane is so very good as this very flawed character um you like that first scene with her on stage and then a later one after she and winston's character have a fight are both like fantastic it's really just i think one of the one of the best and most complex portrayals of punk and this like rock in general and the relationship between your image and what you're trying to accomplish and how much you have control over it that I have ever seen. I really, really like it and I highly recommend it. Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, it's available for rent on most of the usual places and is also streaming on Amazon Prime Instant Video. All right, that sounds. I mean, I, I've heard, I've certainly heard of that movie and read about it, so I'm glad, glad we were able to get it in here. I think it's very fitting given our subject matter on this episode. Now, for my last pick, I had planned, and I think I even told you that this was my plan, Allison, that I was going to talk about one of my favorite documentaries about a rock band, Anvil: The Story of Anvil which you can rent on Amazon and iTunes and a bunch of places. It's a really wonderful documentary. So good. So great. We might have mentioned it on the show before in passing. Um, I, the, the recommendation still stands, and uh, if you haven't seen it, please check it out. It's sort of a real-life spinal tap with a lot of heart, and it's a it's a great, great film. Please check a, it out. Yeah, one of the best endings I can think of Fabulous, in a documentary. Fabulous, fabulous so ending. Good. 
But what happened was, before I could rewatch Anvil, and I've seen that film a bunch of times, I could have talked about it without rewatching it. I ended up just getting a screener of another movie that came out this year that's actually an excellent movie about a rock band. And I watched it last night, and I, I kind of haven't been able to stop thinking about it. So I decided we're going to mix it up, I and mean, I'm going to throw it in here at the last minute. And it's a film called Frank. It's directed by Lenny Abramson, and it's also rentable now on Amazon and iTunes and a bunch of other places. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk about Anvil at first because it was a different sort of rock movie and a movie about a rock band. And, you know, it's not about that competitive uh, uh, dynamic at all, but it's more about friendship. But uh, And Frank is actually similar to some of the stuff we've already talked about, but I found it really interesting in, in the ways that it approached its subject. Uh, so it is a little similar to Velvet Goldmine in that it is about sort of the the people behind these mythic rock geniuses. But I think it picks it apart from a different perspective. Whereas instead of it's from an outsider, in this case, the movie is about the, it really is about the band. It's about Frank's band and the people in it and the dynamics in the band and what it's like to be in a band where there's an established sort of creative leader and genius. And there's a bunch of supporting members around that person. And they're all sort of fighting for control. And the uh, eccentric genius in this question is the title character played by Michael Fassbender. And the sort of key element here is that Frank lives his entire life wearing this giant paper mache head. And so Fassbender plays basically the entire movie in a paper mache head as well. And as the film begins, we actually start with a different character, this sad and ambitious and frankly not particularly talented keyboardist who's named John who stumbles on Frank and his band who they have an unpronounceable name I'm not even going to try to say it uh, as their previous keyboardist essentially quits the band in a fit of madness and to a you know a normal person this would have been a sign to stay as far away from these people as possible clearly this isn't a healthy uh, band with a healthy working relationship but John is ambitious he's desperate uh, and he wants to be a, a, a star, a musical star. And so when they invite him to be the keyboardist replacement, he eagerly accepts. He travels with the band to Ireland where they hunker down to record this album. And while John is kind of fighting with the rest of the band and the manager of the band for, I don't know if it's creative control, but just sort of like to have more of a say in the band and to work more with Frank and to collaborate with Frank uh, we, 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 we watch that relationship develop, and we, we see how Frank is very strange, but also very charming. He can be funny. He's talented, but he also, as we slowly begin to realize, he might also be mentally ill as well. Uh, Fastbender is really great in the movie. I think Dom Hall Gleason playing John is really great as well. And I liked about the movie that it wasn't so much... It wasn't about... Frank as much as it, or it's not just about Frank it's about Frank and it's about John it's about the eccentric genius the eccentric weirdo but it's also about the guy who isn't and I I, I found the movie very relatable in a, in a way that, that surprised me you know like I it's hard for me as this may be hard to believe Allison but it's hard for me to relate to an eccentric genius you know but I feel like especially on this podcast I can relate to standing next to a genius to living in the shadow of a genius you know what I mean I feel like I can relate to that. that, that sort of hope that by associating yourself with someone who's talented, that maybe, you know, the spotlight is big enough that it'll kind of bleed off of them onto you. You'll kind of capture a little bit of that. 
And without spoiling where the movie goes, I think that the path that the film takes is very believable and very sobering also. And not what I expected it to be. Uh, and John is obsessed with social media. And I think that the movie uses social media and you know talks about social media in a way that I think is probably as good as any movie I've seen so far. Uh, outside of maybe like The Social Network, which is about really about social media. But the way that it, it uses it and, and is funny and sad and kind of an acknowledges how it can be addictive and also maybe destructive as well, I think is really awesome. Can I ask you something? Sure. Why do you wear that? You think it's weird? Kinda. Well, normal faces are weird too. Well, the way they're smooth, 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 and then, you know, all bumpy and holes. I mean, what are eyes like? It's like a science fiction movie. Don't get me started on lips. Like the edges of a very serious wound. That's true. <laughs> but your head is still sort of intimidating. Well, underneath, I'm giving you a welcoming smile. Would it help if I said my facial expressions out loud? Well, maybe. Welcoming smile. I think that it also, it touches on in a really interesting way the idea of romanticizing the madness of art. Yes. You know, like he... Uh, John kind of thinks that one of the reasons his life is too normal, he's too stable, you right. know, and all of these people who are just, you know, so odd and like kind of so tearing themselves apart. He's like, well, that's where good art must come from. Right. Like that's where good music must come from. Yes. And the movie suggests actually that sometimes you can just be mad and it's something separate that like that it's not romantic, that it's a, it's a real burden, yeah. like some of the things they see. Yeah, and I, I really like that because I don't think that gets touched on a lot. Right, they, absolutely. I, I hadn't gotten there yet, but just to, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. The idea that we have this myth of the tortured, I mean, even Velvet Goldmine is is kind of about that, The that being a tortured eccentric artist makes you a great artist and that making, like as a result, making strange art is somehow... Uh, better than being more direct or more honest or open or being in touch with your feelings, you know, that that, you know, using a theremin and 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 strange instruments and doing all these bizarre things that, and wearing a paper mache head like that, that that somehow makes you more authentic or a better artist than if you just spoke from your heart. And I yeah, the, the last couple of scenes of this movie, you know, there are th there are things about it that I actually flat out disliked. I haven't mentioned that Maggie Gyllenhaal is in this movie and I found I don't know, her character I just thought was kind of underwritten. She's sort of a, a Yoko figure that I, and I, I, I really felt like she, you, they really totally wasted a fabulous actress in a, in kind of a very one dimensional part. And, and some of the mishaps, I mentioned the, the keyboardist with the, uh, you know, like quitting the band in a fit of madness. That's really the, the base level where characters leave the band in this movie. And I felt like the mishaps were kind of going for a, at first, it seemed like they were trying to do Spinal Tap almost, like kind of a, a very cartoonish thing. And where the movie ultimately goes, I think, is so much more interesting. And I think that the it doesn't really fit with some of the sillier aspects of the movie. I think it's a better movie when it's being a little darker and more serious. So as it was going, I didn't love it. But those last couple of scenes that are about what you talked about, about you know artists and art, oh, man, they, they just hit me really hard. And that's yeah. what kind of why... You know, like it's I, like even as I was watching, I'm saying this isn't a great movie, but the end really elevated it for me. And 
it, I think it would make a great double feature with a lot of the big, uh, bigger Oscar movies of this year. Birdman, I think it would be a great double feature with. Whiplash, I think it would make a fascinating double feature with. The ideas about art and artists and how personalities can play out in the world of art and all that sort of stuff. So I've already rambled on way too long. As I said, I, I, like, I, the movie's fresh in my mind and it's, it's really kind of stirred some stuff up in me that I you know, wanted to talk about. So I, I was looking at, at some reviews of it and it, it did get fabulous reviews. And I guess maybe some of those issues I talked about or it could be part of the reason, but I think it's, it's absolutely, at least it's worth seeing. So if you haven't seen it yet, uh, it is available now on Amazon and iTunes for rent. And uh, definitely encourage people to check it out. Really, one of the more interesting movies I've seen recently. It's called Frank. Okay, listeners' choice review time on SVU. Two weeks ago, we gave you three recent-ish options to choose from for our full-length review on this episode. And third place was Listen Up, Philip, the new film from Alex Ross Perry featuring Jason Schwartzman and Elizabeth Moss. Kind of surprising, actually. I would have pegged that as our winner, but it was in third place. In second place was Venus and Fur, the latest movie from director Roman Polanski. And in first place, and our winner... We Are the Best, the new film from director Lucas Moodyson. The film is actually based on a semi-autobiographical graphic novel by Moodyson's wife, Coco, set in Stockholm in the 1980s, and it's about a pair of middle schoolers, Bobo and Clara, who share a mutual outsider status and an interest in punk music and punk ideas, and they decide to start a punk band together, and there's really only one problem. Neither of them has any musical aptitude or knowledge or talent. Eventually, they do bring in a third member, Hedvig, whose legitimate chops on guitar make her an asset to the group, even if her belief in Christianity makes her a bit of an odd fit. Uh, that's basically the, the whole film, really. I mean, it's, it follows this trio of young girls. These, you know, I guess they're 12, 13. As they practice together, they try to scrounge out money to buy instruments, and they get into a whole bunch of trouble with their parents and with teachers. They also face their first real test as a band when Bobo and Clara both fall for Ellis, a boy in another local punk band. So my question to you, Allison, is twofold. Yes. First, did you feel like We Are the Best had enough stuff going on to sustain itself for its full runtime? And second, and I think much more importantly, who was cuter Ellis or the other guy in the local <laughs> punk band? Well, I'm going to take that. Obviously, Ellis. Yeah, okay. That's the right answer. I, you know, Just wanted to make sure. He is a, He's a, a little punk rock. Yeah. He's punk a punk rock dreamboat. Yeah, He's, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Worth, worth fighting over a little absolutely. bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then second, yeah, I definitely think so. You know, it's one of those movies that attempt... I, and I, I I really like Lucas Moodyson's teen movies like this and um, Show Me Love. I think drop you into the mindset of of being a teenager especially in this case being an early teenager these characters are still mostly on the far side of puberty <laughs> and they they look like children and sometimes they act like children when you see them playing with yarn that they find on the street you know or something uh i i think that it, it drops you into that mindset where little dramas swell like are, are huge you know where trying to make a band happen is this enormous 
endeavor that is the most important thing in your life or where the cute boy who lives a few towns over is and and having this completely like chaste visit with him is this huge drama i i think it it portrays that very charmingly and without any condescension you know this is a movie that is basically about girls who have nothing to rebel against and i really i thought that was really well done what did you think of the parents in this uh, I I, li- I like the parents. I mean, uh, you said they don't have anything to rebel against, but I think what they do have is sort of this kind of this discomfort in their sort of home lives. I mean, especially Bobo, who has a single mom and seems kind of... I wouldn't say she's neglected, but she's certainly not the focal point of her mom's life. The mom is seems to be dating a lot, is kind of distracted with other things, and, uh, and they, they don't seem to relate really too well either. They don't seem to have a lot in common, uh, you know, um clara her you know her parents seem kind of cool and fun and like they are encouraging of her starting a punk band and they like want to sit in and jam like the dad wants to jam on the clarinet or whatever it is which is really funny and so it's interesting that sort of she has the most kind of militant punk edge to her and yet she seems to have the more kind of permissive yeah permissive comfortable life which is kind of uh, uh home life which is kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, it's a slight movie in terms of the story, but I really love this movie. I thought uh, it really... It's interesting because it is so specific in a way that I have don't know nothing about. You know, I'm not Swedish. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a teenage girl. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I have never been a teenage girl. And I'm not even really a... You know, I've never been a punk person who's been into punk or anything like that but i but what i could relate to was what like why these girls start a punk band is that they're kind of like you know they're kind of weirdo nerds basically they don't fit in you know and i I looked at you know there's some wonderful scenes with bobo who is this you know as you said sort of like puberty is a long ways off for bobo bobo is you know if she's 13 years old she looks like she's 11 or the actress is heartbreaking yeah <laughs> she's yeah she's like t- wonderful right she's great and but but you know there are scenes where she's like looking in the mirror and looking at herself kind of with just absolute dissatisfaction and i could my heart bled for that character because i remember being that age and having that moment of like i was a late bloomer i think i'm still waiting for puberty to hit <laughs> frankly but at that age i was a really late bloomer i mean i was like you know four foot nothing and you know just I looked like a child in a world of, you know, rapidly uh, maturing uh, teenagers. And so, you know, when you're, when you're like, I found the things that I got into comic books and Star Trek and these fantasies. And for her and for Clara, it's like, that's what punk is. It's this escape. It's this, you know, this thing that they can become, they can aspire to, that they can lose themselves in. And I thought that it was absolutely just so wonderfully relatable even you know that just it was so specific and yet so universal this story it was telling and i agree it's not condescending at all it 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 i think it treats these characters so well and it's so lovely and i really really enjoyed it i have to say and uh, the ending is fantastic it's so good yeah it's perfect perfect (laughs) absolutely perfect yeah you know as someone who did grow up going to pop punk shows in at gilman street in berkeley um i find basically any portrayal of suburbanish kids uh getting into punk rock it just basically destroys me Mm -hmm. so i really liked this uh and i think it speaks to 
I, I mean, punk rock is for is for the young, right? Because the basic ideas of rebellion and saying screw it in a in a general sense of feeling alienated and 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 wanting to I don't know create chaos it is not necessarily sustainable ethos into mm-hmm. adulthood, but mm-hmm. really speaks to you potentially like as a teenager. And I, I loved that. I mean, I mentioned that they don't have anything rebel against. And I think, I mean, in the sense that neither of them has a perfect home life, but, or, but that they, they're not being locked up or held back or abused or right. anything. Right. No. You know, they live in fairly comfortable, stable homes. Yeah. yeah. All, all you know, all. like the worst that Bobo has is that she has to make herself fish sticks. Right. Which she does in the toaster. <laughs> it's amazing. But that, you know, they, and that their parents are largely permissive about what the things they want to get into. Right. And that that's almost part of the frustration is that they push at things and then the things just give. Right. right. And that, well, that's part of the movie as well is that people tell them that punk is dead. That, right. You know, there is nothing left to rebel against. Right. Exactly. And everyone's moved on to, I don't know what, 80s jazzercise. Jazzercise is that one, I guess, that <laughs> yeah, school that assembly da- where they're watching the, the, I can't remember the song off the top of my head, but it's a great scene that just yeah. kind of shows the distance between the cool kids in school. This is what's in right now. And and shows us where, you know, Bobo and Clara are, which is a long ways away from, yeah, like spandex and, and 80s dance music. Yeah, and I really like that they see in Hedwig, like, uh, this is a kind of common spirit, uh, in that you... when she's introduced, she's coming up in, like, kind of this very modest outfit and playing a classical guitar piece in front of a booing crowd right. at that same show. Yeah. And that there's something that is as punk rock about her not caring <laughs> that no one will like this mm. and that they seize on that there, you know, that's really touching. Um, something that you, you talked about that I oh, briefly that I wanted to mention more of is the, is the fact that, you know, that these, the, these girls are so, they're so young, you know, and we don't see enough movies. I feel like about this age, you know, that, that, teenagers are in movies are always like high school end of high school and they're always played by 25 year olds yeah because then you can you know you can put more stuff on screen that teenagers and and 20 somethings are interested in seeing and that's fine for what it is but it does lose a little bit of that authenticity and and i loved what you said about how you know they they act like little girls at times and i was i watched this movie with my wife and she was like this scene, I'll, I'm going to see if you can guess which scene, but there was one scene particular. she was like, this is what it was like to be this age. And she was really impressed by that. It was one scene in particular with the three girls together. Hmm. I'll tell you. It was okay, the scene, yeah. there's a scene in the movie where I alluded to it in the introduction where they, they're basically, they need, a, they need a guitar. They need an electric guitar. They only have oh, a, yeah. an acoustic guitar. So they're, so they're basically begging people for money and they start off telling the truth and being like we want to buy a guitar and no one's going to give uh, a 13 year old uh, girl you know begging for money on the street money to buy a guitar but then it suddenly becomes lies like my my father you know yeah, abused me one and of beat them, us up yeah and, one of them actually makes reference to a famous swedish documentary at the time about drug addicts right right <laughs> and there's like one of those was my dad that was my dad yeah we've <laughs> had it really rough but then what do they do with the money instead of buying a guitar or saving it they go and buy candy and chocolate and then they sit there and they gorge themselves on yeah. junk food and that was the scene that really uh hit, you know hit my wife it's you know it's not about oh we're going to get drunk and we're going to party it's like we're going to get chocolate and candy and eat as much as we can and gorge ourselves and like cuz that's what when you're 12 years old that's what freedom means it doesn't right, mean right. it doesn't mean sex or 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 drugs uh, it means 
yeah, it means going to the store and buying a bunch of candy and eating it all and until you get sick. And she said, this is what it was like. And, and uh, I, I said, I, it feels real. You know, it has that, it really seems to tap into that, that, that's very specific time and that age that I don't think we see enough of in, in movies. Yeah. And sex is not even on the table yet. You know, right. like there's no real thought of it. And when right. they fight over Ellis, it's in the way of, I don't know. He, you know, he is like, he's literally like a kid. They see a picture of in like a local zine. He's like, he's a, a guy who the team beat magazine yeah. <laughs> that they, you know, summon in real life. And, and she also, that's part of that scene. And she also, my wife i hope she doesn't mind me saying was like this is what it was like because we would do this with the new kids be like my sister is gonna marry donnie and i'm gonna marry oh, joey yeah. and you know yeah, like absolutely and in this movie it's fun because they're local celebrities i guess and that they can actually kind of come into the movie in a really great way and that scene is fantastic too because then you have the scene where it's like there's the three girls but only two guys and I have definitely been in that. <laughs> I think probably everyone listening has been in that situation where you're that you're age the other person and maybe. you're the, you're the third wheel yeah. on a date or something. And it is the most uncomfortable. And again, just my, my heart bleeding for Bobo. I really, I took, I, t- I, I took ownership of that character in a very, in a way that I probably shouldn't admit, but uh, I really, you know, that scene and watching her in that scene, I was again just like heart, heartbroken yeah. for her. She's uh, that actress also has just the best little serious face. Yes, she doesn't really. Clara has like a more traditional punk look. Bobo looks like she could skip instantly to being like a a forty year old academic. Yes, man. A, yeah, <laughs> a librarian. Yes, yeah. like has she's a very got, librarian look. Yeah, with like those glasses. Yeah, the round like, glasses. Yeah, she's and really adorable and like oh, heartbreaking, definitely. Yeah, um, I liked Hedwig as well. Like she, you know, as the kind of sensible one, and also as the one who. There's one point where you meet her mom. Yes, and another good scene. Yeah, and that scene, the scene afterwards, like the scene that follows certain drama around her mom, I think is just so well done. Yes, and, and I and I like the way too that the character doesn't, you know, she is she's Christian and you know she believes, and the, I think the way that they handle her beliefs and her the way she fits into the band because, uh, like you said, she's another outsider. She can relate to these girls. They can be like they have things in common, but she doesn't have to, you know, like reject God and has to have you know like this have this fight with her mom like none of that is in the movie it's not about that I, I like the fact that it again underplayed that in a very believable way that it didn't make a big drama out of it there's drama there there's tension there's a whole thing about the mom and and about going to church and all this sort of thing but it's it doesn't you know in a hollywood movie there's a way that those scenes would play out and it does not play out this way here which again yeah. I, I really respected and enjoyed um we haven't also mentioned the one song they have which is a great song it's a great song it's uh, hate the sport hate the sport <laughs> and what i like about it in the movie is that it, as you see over the course of time it's very like mutable they can just change it to any yeah. word hate this hate that hate whatever the parents it is. Yeah. hate the parents <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. hate the teen center hate yeah exactly hate the other band that wants to use our our room like whatever it is they could just it's very very malleable i thought that was that also felt very, very real to me. I mean, I was in a, I was in a terrible band at that, a little older than that, uh, and so again, that's another thing. Like, like being terrible, but not letting that stop you. Like, uh-huh. I played harmonica. I didn't know how to play harmonica. <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't. I, like, I couldn't read music. You know, I could carry a tune better than these uh, young women could. I'll say that, but it was we were, we were playing like jazz music and i was playing harmonica like what the <laughs> hell were we doing but it really captures that sort of like how much fun it can be to be that age and just mess around with with instruments 
and not have any pressure. To, like it's not like we're gonna be the biggest stars in Sweden. You know, we're not. We're gonna take over Stockholm. No, it's like we just want to have a place to hang out and and you know and and be kids. And I I, I just felt I, I was very charmed by this movie. I think it's really really lovely. And uh, you know, it's funny. I saw it back to back with Frank, and I liked Frank a lot too. It, another good potential double feature. I think that's there's a lot more to chew over, I guess, in Frank. But uh, this this might be a little more. Uh, it's probably a lot more like entertaining and it just hits all the right notes. You know, it's a little movie, but it's, it's made to perfection really. Yeah. It's, it's really great. Uh, that is, we are the best and it is now streaming on Netflix. All right. Before we get to behind the eight ball, let's do singer and one more completely concise, totally succinct new release roundup. Allison wants to talk about two movies that are already in theaters. We haven't seen the big new movie coming out next week when you're listening to this, which is Dumb and Dumber 2, which I, I want to say I'm looking forward to. I, I really too. hope it's good. I hope so, too. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope I really so. really do. Because it's going to be really painful if it's not. That's true. There's no middle ground for Dumb and Dumber 2. But uh, instead, we're going to talk about the movies that came out uh, last Friday, by the time you're hearing this, which are Interstellar and Big Hero 6. Allison, I, I, I've read a little of your writing on BuzzFeed about this subject matter, but uh, do you have one you prefer to the other? I would say it's certainly less ambitious, but Big Hero 6, I really, I, I thought was quite lovable. It's a pretty standard superhero origin story, but it has this gorgeous setting of uh, San Francisco, which is halfway, be it's a cross between San Francisco and Tokyo. Uh, it has a really interestingly diverse array of characters, uh, which I really, as someone who is half Chinese, seeing a half Asian lead character in a Disney movie was surprisingly touching for me. I didn't realize how much I'd wanted to see a mixed race main character in a movie, in a Disney movie particularly. And then it has Baymax, which is the most adorable creation of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's pretty cute. Did yeah. you there's a I saw there's a video of 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 you know one of the Disney theme parks where they already have someone in a Baymax costume. I and do not doubt it. It's disturbingly cute. <laughs> Even in real, like you would think in real life, it might be horrifying. Like the eyes blink. Right. It was. It was. It was a little too lifelike, honestly. But in a way that was like, I wish I was eight years old and at Disney World, I would probably. Uh, hug Baymax until they pulled me off. They'd have oh, to yeah. like pry him from my, <laughs> my cold yeah. dead eight year old hands. Yeah. He's just this marvel of like, of adorable and character design. Like, he is so, I mean, I, I will say this. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. He is so craven. Like that you couldn't make a more Disney ish character. He is his own stuffed animal. Yes. I mean, he is like a, he's like, what if we made a robot that was a stuffed animal <laughs> and was adorable? I mean, they even, they even say in the movie, like the character that creates him says he was designed to be huggable. I mean, they're not even, they don't even make it a, they don't even hide it. Like that is Disney at its most Disney ish, but you know, they do, this is why they're the best. Yeah. This is why they're so huge. And they, it's really like he's he's touching. He he steals scenes. He's, I mean, yeah. look, Disney is there's very th there's things that Disney does better than anybody else, and one of them is make the cute, uh, lovable sidekick that somehow doesn't manage to be like clawing and annoying. Yeah, and that is Baymax. He is like deliberately designed to be cute and adorable and tug at your heartstrings. You know that that's what he's there for. You see them doing it to you, and you still. By the you end of it, you're resist. just like, you, you can't, can't resist. resist. You yeah. cannot resist. What did you think of this movie? I, I enjoyed it. I think you might have enjoyed it a little more than I did. Like, honestly, we haven't talked about Interstellar yet. I would say if you're going to see one of these movies on the big screen, I would see Interstellar. Yeah, I, I would too, just because I also don't think Interstellar is going to retain a, that certain amount of its power when it's taken right, off of it. Right. I, it's it's the more of an experience on the big screen. The, the, the images of outer space, 
you know, and I didn't even see it in 70 millimeter. I saw it in 35 millimeter. Right. But I still thought, you know, it is a it is an experience, and it's 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 three hours long. It is something that needs to be reckoned with. You need to be in the theater in the dark. Uh, you know, it has a lot of stuff going on. It's chunky. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think there's a lot that's wrong with it. Uh, but I think it's it's like something worth reckoning with. It is something to to. It's like you want to be a part of that conversation. Big Hero Six is lovely. It's very charming. It's very entertaining. There will be plenty of other opportunities. Yeah, you'll to see, see it. Yeah, you won't miss anything by seeing it on on uh, Blu-ray. Yeah. So I would say if you're going to see one, see Interstellar. But yeah, I I enjoyed Big Hero Six quite a bit. Look, it's a it's a it's a very well made superhero movie. That that I'm I'm in the bag for that. That's, you can't and go it's wrong got with me. Some Pixarish touches, I think, to. The it, to me, it felt more like yeah, a little bit. I mean, it, it has more of the. I mean, it's it feels like a Brad Bird movie. I mean, mm-hmm. if I was yeah. Brad Bird, it's I'd got be some like Iron Giant. I would it, expect. Certainly. Well, it's like Brad Bird. It's like Iron Giant meets The Incredibles. It's yeah. almost exactly those two movies smushed together. I mean, it is based on a Marvel comic, but it feels a lot more like someone went. Here's the pitch, guys. It's The Incredibles meets The Iron Giant. And I hope Brad Bird has a good relationship with Disney and he can get some kind of residuals because I feel like they owe him some money because they are ripping him off hardcore. Yeah, but that's a good combo. It's, it's a good combo and they do it well. They do it well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Any, anything else to say about Interstellar? I just I feel like it's like the most Christopher Nolan movie ever. You know, I feel like the space things are gorgeous and amazing. Yeah. And like seeing them on IMAX was like almost made me, you know feel like i was falling through space like in a bad like it's not always a good way you know they just loom so large and they're so impressive and i feel like the character drama i just left was so lacking for me yeah i didn't love it there are some things that like to me i've read a lot of articles uh, about the science the science is wrong like that seems ridiculous to me that anyone would ever consider that part right to me it's so absurd because it's so clear i mean it's a movie like where there's literally transformers in this movie there are transforming robots so to me it's it the science doesn't matter what bothered me more was like i found the the sort of the the end the ending yeah was was a little absurd and ridiculous and silly and also kind of predictable in some parts like the the big reveal I, I, we obviously don't want to spoil it but there's a there's a sort of a thing that's introduced early in the film and it's a mystery and within five minutes i knew what the secret yeah, of that yeah. was and i think most people probably do and you know when you th- when you have astrophysicists trying to figure these things out and they can't and i'm an idiot and i'm going oh it, it's x that's a little bit of a problem but again it, as a spectacle as an event as a thing to reckon with i think it's I think it's interesting and worth seeing. Yeah, and I think it's worth seeing too. Even though I do kind of feel like it's a whole very convoluted justification for not needing to spend a lot of time with your children because <laughs> love is the fifth dimension. Uh, <laughs> um, that we could probably have a whole podcast a whole long about, debate this. about this. Maybe someday we'll uh, we'll review Interstellar on the podcast and we'll be able to get into that. I don't know if I agree with you, but that uh, you might have a point. You might have a point. I've thought about this a lot. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. All right. Well, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball. This is the segment where we go back to streaming and we talk about three new titles on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations and we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Uh, Allison, do you want to go first? Sure. All right. Well, let's start with three new titles. All right. First up is a documentary that is new to Netflix. It's actually a Netflix original doc. They acquired it themselves. It is Virunga. Uh, which premiered at Tribeca and they picked up this summer. Uh, It's about Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is home to the last of the mountain gorillas. And there are only a few hundred left. They're very endangered. 
Uh, and it's about the people who work there in the park, the park rangers, who are trying to protect the animals from poachers and from the Congo Civil War and instability in the government in general. And most infuriating of all, the British oil company uh, that's been eyeing the potential oil reserves in the park and who are basically bribing their way into access while funding the rebels. Uh, and it's it's a movie that can, turns conservation into a life and death game. And actually the chief warden, Emmanuel de Marode, who is a member of the Belgian Royal family survived an assassination attempt just before the film premiered at Tribeca. Uh, so it literally is conservation as a life and death game. The park is both very vulnerable, very valuable and a target from, from many angles. Uh, so it's, if you like to be made angry in your docu documentaries, this is one that really does the trick uh, and I think is, is probably going to be a potential candidate for the Oscars. So if that is also of interest to you, it is worth checking out as well. Also new to Netflix is Stretch, which I have not seen yet, but I'm noting for the curious and those who always watch, who like to keep an eye on troubled films. Mm. Uh, this is Joe Carnahan's film follow-up to The Grey. He's been doing some TV in between. It is a dark comedy with an impressive cast that uh, Universal tried to dump rather than release as planned in March. They actually gave the producers the option to shop it around to other distributors. No one, no one bit. And so Universal basically dumped it onto VOD, digital rental, and now Netflix all in basically the past month. It stars Patrick Wilson as Stretch, a limo driver and failed actor trying to get over a breakup and to clear a gambling debt while driving around an eccentric playboy played by Chris Pine. Uh, the trailer did not sell me on this movie, but it's actually got something like an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, though I think people also always have a soft spot for the film that the studio treated poorly. So uh, that is Stretch, new to Netflix. And finally, new to Hulu is The Color Wheel. Um, director Alex Ross Perry's latest, Listen Up Philip, did not win our most recent listener's choice poll, but you can now catch up with his previous film, The Color Wheel, for free on Hulu, which is even more abrasive and deliberately unpleasant in a way you will either relish or hate. Uh, Perry uh, stars in the movie himself as Colin, who accompanies his sister J.R., played by Carlin, uh, Carlin Altman, on a road trip to retrieve her belongings from the place she shared with her ex-boyfriend. And in the meantime, they show off plenty of dysfunction. All right. How about two listener recommendations? First up, we have a listener recommendation from Patrick. Um, this is from, uh, I think, a little while ago because it's slightly... Uh, Halloween themed, but still a good one. It is The American Experience War of the Worlds, which is streaming now on Amazon Prime, as well as the original Mercury Theater radio broadcast found via various outlets throughout the internet. There may not be a more reliable documentary series on television than The American Experience, and the episode focusing on the October 31st, 1938 broadcast of Orson Welles' infamous CBS radio broadcast is no exception. The program lays out all of the cultural variables and historic mi milestones that laid way for the special and explains why the events of the 1930s had created a perfect storm which allowed for millions of Americans nationwide to be fooled by the so-called panic broadcast. The program is great, but more than anything, it provides a perfect excuse to go back and listen to the original 1938 broadcast, which is still surprisingly compelling 67 year 76 years later. If you haven't heard this before, give it a listen. Even without the benefit of believing it's true, the broadcast remains remarkably thrilling and features great voice performances from Wells and his company. Best listened to with the lights out. And then we have a recommendation from Sam, who recommends The Taking of Deborah Logan, which is new to Netflix. 
Sam writes that even if you think that you never want to watch a found footage movie again, give this indie horror film a try. Michelle Ang plays a student shooting her thesis film about Alzheimer's. Only her subject, Deborah Logan, played by Jill Larson, isn't just struggling with early onset of the disease. It's a disturbing film that blends the supernatural creepiness of a possession with the everyday horrors of Alzheimer's. All right. Sounds good. All right. And one film chosen from your my list. You gave me number 23, which is Strongman, a documentary about stainless steel, the strongest man in the world at bending steel and metal. He adds, um, a.k.a. Stanley Pleskin, who is a man who lives in New Jersey with his girlfriend and his sister and who continues to search for fame in the old fashioned world of feats of strength, like bending a penny with his bare hands, despite being well into middle age at this point. Uh, this is a film that got a lot of praise when it came out, you know, shot over years. It earned comparisons to The Wrestler, the Darren Aronofsky film. And I know that the film spotting Mothership, uh, were, they were fans over there. Right. So it's one that I'll get to eventually. And it sounds, you know, terrific, if also heartrending. Strongman. Okay. All right. Are you ready, Matt? Let's do it. Okay. Three new picks. All right. First up, and just in time for that long-awaited sequel that we briefly mentioned earlier, and I predict... You heard it here first. Will be a major contender for the Best Picture Oscar <laughs> next spring. It's the original Dumb and Dumber, now streaming on Netflix. Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels star as, uh, I would call them very smart men by my standards, Lloyd Christmas and Harry Dunn, uh, as they embark on a journey from Providence, Rhode Island, to the most beautiful city in all of California, that's right, Aspen, to return a missing briefcase to a woman played by Lauren Holly that uh, Lloyd gave, to a, gave a ride to the airport. And little do they know that Holly's dream woman character is actually married, and the briefcase actually contains the ransom for the kidnappers. I rewatched this movie last week in anticipation of the sequel, Allison, and I have to say I was delighted to see that it holds up very well, is still very funny, and contains... I'm not even going to qualify it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's the single greatest diarrhea scene of all time. I can't think of one that would compete right Bridesmaids now. Is, Bridesmaids is close. Bridesmaids is close. Uh, but I'm going to stick with the classics. Dumb and Dumber streaming on Netflix. Next up, a childhood favorite of mine that's new on Netflix. It's Tim Burton's Batman. I still have vivid memories of seeing this one in the theater in uh, 1989. My dad took me to the East Brunswick Mall, and I remember uh, we were a little bit late. I was busy looking at the display of all the comics in the lobby. We almost missed the uh, the opening credits. Uh, but uh, you know, I think... The thing about the the Burton Batman movies is interesting is that I feel like their reputation has dropped as the Nolan, Nolan Batmans yeah. have uh, ascended. You know, like they're so different than the Nolan ones. They're so gothic and stylized, and the that they look kind of cartoonish in comparison. But I think viewed apart from all that, viewed apart from the Nolan movies, I think they hold up really well. Apart from that, apart from the the Nolan movies, and apart from the fact that. Batman straight up murders like 20 people in the movie. <laughs> I think that it actually holds up really well. I think it's really fun to watch it now while Birdman is in theaters and Michael Keaton is kind of calling back to the character in, in a certain sense in that movie. Uh, Jack Nicholson got all the attention for playing the Joker back in 1979, and he's great in the movie, but I think Keaton really got uh, kind of overlooked at how good a Batman he is. He's, he's tough, and he's legitimately crazy and i was really enamored now looking at it with how like ordinary and how human he is he's his hair he looks like he's kind of losing his hair he wears these big bobo-esque glasses throughout the movie and uh 
you know, he, I don't think he takes his shirt off one time in the entire movie. He's it, and he is doesn't the world show off. Asking for that? Well, no, because <laughs> he's he doesn't have a superhero physique, and that is a comic book hero I can get behind—a nearsighted, unshapely nerd. <laughs> That's my kind of hero. So, if you haven't seen it in a while or you've never seen it, take a look. Batman streaming now on Netflix. Finally, rounding out uh, my 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 new picks uh, with older movies, I've got Seven, another movie I just recently rewatched. I rewatched this one when Gone Girl came out, and I, this might have been the first time I'd seen it since this, since it came out. And like Batman, I really thought it held up very well. It's not quite as horrifying as I remembered. It's funny how a movie with shocking graphic content kind of over the years, yeah, yeah, and, and be, you know, it just it can't compete with whatever you know compared to like a torture porn movie it, well now like hannibal on tv exactly you know, it's a great <laughs> on point like, on like network television right but maybe maybe in a way that's to david fincher's credit you know that he got so much mileage out of showing not as much as we thought he did uh and by creating this incredible atmosphere of dread around the serial killer case with the murders everyone's being killed according to the seven deadly sins uh, I enjoyed all that, going back to it. And I really liked Morgan Freeman's performance. I thought he, like, I didn't remember how great he was as the aging detective. He's seen it all. He's getting ready for retirement. And, uh, yeah, holds up really good. Final sequence, still really good, even though it's become kind of a pop culture joke, the the end of the movie. I, still really disturbing and, and excellent. Still fantastic. So that's Seven, streaming on Netflix. All right, two listener recommendations. Okay, first up. A recommendation here from Stephen P. He says, I'm not the biggest fan of reality shows. However, one show that just popped back up on Netflix that I loved when I first got my subscription is Man vs. Food, Travel Channel's super enjoyable and mouthwatering show, which follows host Adam Richman traveling across America, spotlighting restaurant hotspots, and engaging in bizarre eating contests, um, whether it be downing ridiculously spicy hot wings or drinking 15 milkshakes in a single setting. Perhaps I just enjoy seeing giant food on screen because it looks like regular size food to me. Wonka vision in action. So that's Man vs. Food uh, streaming now on Netflix. That's a show I have watched. I've gotten some uh, eating recommendations. I enjoy going to some of these restaurants and eating, you know, 600 hot wings or what have you. This is an interesting question, Allison. This yes. is one that my wife has posed to me and to other people. She, it's like a, it's a way she gauges people. Okay. If you were to become a competitive eater... And you had to choose one food that you think you would be able to win in. Of all the foods in the world, what one food would you competitive eat in? Spaghetti, I think. Spaghetti. Yeah. With sauce, without sauce? With sauce. With just plain tomato sauce, bolognese? With meatballs Butter, well. sauce, anything. I, yeah, I think spaghetti and meatballs. That was, you could win. That you feel I that's your strength. I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's a strong choice. I like that choice. Thank you. What's that's yours? I, my my go-to answer is usually ribs. I'm a big ribs fan. Or maybe Sour Patch Kids. I, there's never <laughs> enough Sour Patch Kids in that bag. I eat that bag in like 30 seconds, and I'm like, I could, I could eat more Sour Patch Kids. So one or the other, not together. All right, let's move on to this recommendation from Candace. I believe this is Candace who wor- works on the Film Spotting Motherships, writing in, making a cameo appearance on Film Spotting SVU. Candace writes in and says, Please look into the excellent BBC miniseries Peaky Blinders, starring Killian Murphy, Helen McCrory, and Sam Neill. The series, which tells the story of a post-World War I Birmingham gang and the police who try to control them, is a standout in cast, plot, and sets. Season 1 is streaming on Netflix. Season 2 is currently airing in the UK and adds Tom Hardy to the mix. Now you've got my attention with Tom Hardy and Killian Murphy, the battle of the Nolan Batman villains. I like it. Have you? I think we have briefly mentioned this we before have. on I the show. I, have you seen it yet? I've seen a few episodes. I saw the first two, I think. and I, I really like them. I just haven't had time to watch more. I think the first season is only six episodes. But 
to bring this all around, the theme song is Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Look Bad Seeds. Look at that. It's amazing. Yeah. Another film spotting miracle. <laughs> what? Is it what 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 are the chances that if this movie was airing on a broadcast television that it would have aired with the title Peaky Blinders? Would they or would they have changed it? No, I think if someone else almost one hundred percent would have right? been like, except that that's the name of the gang, right? The Peaky Blinders, but it doesn't make it. But nobody knows that. No, I know, and at it's, least not in America. And it's such like an incomprehensible phrase, right? Yeah, it's like it's it's, it's not an appealing. No, it doesn't have good uh, shelf appeal, as they would say. <laughs> All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number three, and uh, we're going to be doubling up on cooking shows here because uh, number three on my my list is the Chopped Collection, the Food Network cooking competition where four chefs compete to win not nearly enough money, in my opinion, to embarrass themselves on television while cooking these ridiculous and borderline disgusting combinations of surprise, surprise ingredients. So, you know, you have to cook an appetizer, and, and you'll have to use, like, clams and arugula and honey nut Cheerios, or you have to cook dessert with, like, pre-made pie crust and cranberries and veal brains. And yet, it's an oddly addictive show, much like Man vs. Food. When I saw it pop up on Netflix, I knew I needed it at the top of my my list because at a moment's notice, I might need to watch, like, three chops in a row. It has happened before. It will happen again. Allison, are you ready to discuss our listener's choice options for our next episode? I am. We have an interesting batch here. I'm not really sure what's going to win this time. Sometimes I think I do. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. This time I really don't have any idea. Why don't you go first? You have the first option. I do. The first option is one that I've already mentioned uh, in the last section. It is Stretch, the uh, Joe Carnahan film starring Patrick Wilson, rowdy Hollywood comedy, mostly set in a limo, etc. You know, I feel like if there what why are we having a streaming video podcast if yes. not to tackle movies from high profile directors that have been dumped and ceremonies. And high profile studios. Yeah, exactly. That have been dumped onto streaming with very little explanation. Right. I think it premiered on VOD uh, and yes. and then just like a week or two later it was already on Netflix. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty unheard of. It with is that cast that you mentioned, that's a good cast. I know. And then big name and director. Carnahan, you know, for all that he has ups and downs, I think he's a very talented director. Yep, yep. And I'm curious to see what he did with this. I, in some ways, it feels like this is meant to be his more commercial comeback after The Grey. Yeah. And it just got, it clearly went less well. So so I'm curious. I'm certainly curious. And that stretch, it's on Netflix, yeah. like all of our picks this week. Yeah. Morbidly curious, perhaps, but still curious. I agree. I think that would be, a, I'm, I'm curious to see it as well. Our second option, also streaming on Netflix, is from 1991. It's an older film. It's directed by Joe Johnston, and it is called The Rocketeer. It's based on the Dave Stevens graphic novel uh, about... Uh, well, actually, you know what? It's, it, I would say it's probably, even though it is based on a graphic novel, certainly the movie very heavily inspired by the look, the retro style of Tim Burton's Batman. I mean, it came out in 91, two years later. I don't think... We, we might not have gotten The Rocketeer if not for Batman you know, exploding onto the scene in 1989 and really driving... Not just the uh, the desire for you know comic book movies, but also for like these retro Art Deco kind of golden age kind of comic book movies. And The Rocketeer's a little sunnier than uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Maybe not quite as gothic. Uh, gothic is not the right word to describe it, but it is a comic book adventure. It's directed by Joe Johnston, who recently did the first Captain America movie, which was very entertaining. He also did Jumanji and October Sky and Jurassic Park 3, which I kind of like. Uh, he's probably best known, uh, not not as a director, then as the one of the key visual effects artists on the original Star Wars trilogy. Uh, and the movie, I haven't seen this movie, in, I don't think since it came out. I, I, I believe I saw it in the theater. My memories of seeing that one in the theater, not as strong as seeing Batman in the theater. But uh, 
I, I would be very interested to, to see it again because people, I think it's accrued a bit of a cult reputation. People kind of talk about it a little glowingly. And I'm curious whether that's a nostalgia thing or whether it is a really good, solid kind of early 90s action comic book movie. I'm curious to see how it holds up. Uh, because I haven't seen it in so long, and there are so many of those movies from that period that I did become obsessed with uh, at that age because of my interest, and I never did get obsessed with The Rocketeer. So uh, I'm, I'm interested to take a look at that one. So that's The Rocketeer, and that's streaming on Netflix. And finally, our third pick, continuing in that vein and yes. following up in a, on a movie that you already spoke about, Matt. Our third pick is Batman Returns, which is, like the other two streaming on Netflix, the 1992 Tim Burton sequel to Batman. And at least it's... I've seen this one much more than I've seen the original Batman, but I always preferred it. Uh, Michael Keaton back again. Michael Keaton, who uh, uh, is, as you mentioned, currently playing Birdman and referencing his Batman-ish past. Tim Burton has a new movie coming out as well, Big Eyes. Uh, and uh, this, can I, I think what I'm interested in looking at is that cartoonishness, the cartoonishness of this that, you know, kind of got swept away once Christopher Nolan revisited and revamped the series to mm-hmm. be super serious and gritty and at least somewhat realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I feel like there's a certain kind of longing to return to that a bit. Like mm-hmm. Gotham, the TV show that's on right now, okay. certainly fits more in the vein I think of that in terms of how it's slightly more cartoonish and uh, a little more gothic and outsized. Okay. I uh, haven't seen that show at all. It's okay. But I think that it, it's interesting in that it, I feel like it reaches back a little more towards this type right. of Batman. And then it also, but the main reason I want to talk about it, uh, Danny DeVito as a penguin, of course, but is Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, who is maybe my favorite comic book character of all time. Not Catwoman in general, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. Not Christopher Walken as Max Shrek. I enjoy him a lot in this movie, but no, the particular origin story and characterization of Catwoman and Michelle, how Michelle Pfeiffer plays her in this. You think I that's worth, worth a discussion? I think so. Okay. I mean, particularly given how women in, in superhero movies have evolved or not evolved. Mm. I think that I, I don't know that anyone's really like hit on a character as complicated as that one, Interesting. you know, since then. So I, I would certainly like to talk about that, but I'd be happy with any of these three picks. Okay. Well, I think there would be a lot to talk about with Batman Returns and a lot of different themes we could do as well that I think people would enjoy. But we don't decide, you guys decide. So, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, November 17th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film. And then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out on or around Tuesday, November 25th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. And do keep on sending your streaming recommendations to us. We always need new ones to read in our uh, online, on air. So uh, SVU at Filmspotting SVU.com. 
whenever you see something you've enjoyed on streaming, send it our way, please. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>